We present the news quiz with your host, Sandy Toxvig. Hello and welcome to the news quiz. We start with a cutting from the New Statesman read by Zeb Sones. Despite not having the favour of Ed Miliband, Mary Cray has done well, even in unglamorous briefs. And our thanks to John Miles for sending that in. Now, let's meet the teams. Will you welcome first, on my right, Andy Hamilton and Rebecca Front. And opposite them on my left, Bob Mills and Jeremy Hardy. Andy, who's banking on a quick sale? Uh, This must be the Royal Bank of Scotland. The bank that likes to say, whoops. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not really qualified to talk about this. I don't, I've never had much interest in markets and stocks and all that stuff. I've never personally bought any shares, although luckily the government bought some for me <laughs> in, in 2008. In fact, they bought them for all of us. All, really, all the taxpayers. We all got the government as a present. They bought us 80% of the Royal Bank of Scotland. And now, George Osborne, who understands these things, has decided that (laughs) that it's time to sell them at a loss of seven billion. To be honest with you, I'm pleasantly surprised that we're getting any money back because I kind of assumed that when you bailed out a failing bank, that was a bit like lending money to a friend who's pissed. (laughs) You know, they say they're gonna give it back Monday, but you know, that's not gonna happen. But the good news is that even though we're losing seven billion on this deal, we're going to be absolutely minted when they sell Lloyd's because for some their shares, we've got shares in Lloyd's, everyone. I'd forgotten about my shares in Lloyd's. I know, so easy to do. And the great news is when they sell those, for some reason, yeah. we're all going to make a lot of money. They're going to, we're actually going to end up in profit. And I don't know why Lloyd's is so valuable. They sold the black horse. He did rather slip that one past the media where he said, well, although it looks as though we're making a loss on this, we're making a profit if you factor in other things which are nothing to do with it. (laughs) I mean, I'm five foot six, but if I factor in a ladder, I'm over six foot. Did you you see the the shots of the Mansion House dinner where it was done? It was the most extraordinary thing. It was, how can I put this, not a particularly diverse guest list. That's the thing I'm going to say. Honestly, there were so many white faces. It looked like the cast of Downton Abbey in a snowstorm. It was the most... (laughs) Is that the one where they clap them in? They clap them in. The dress code for the event uh, at Mansion House is black tie, which is ironic as the uh, ethnicity is white privilege. And... um, Extraordinary thing, um, but apparently considered a great success. Very unusual to get that many Tories in one place in a restaurant and not have it smashed up at the end. So I think it's. <laughs> He's also going to bring in a law that says that he has to run a surplus because uh, the reason that he had to abandon his last deficit plan was that he wasn't legally bound to his target, you see. And the uh-huh. reason he supported Gordon Brown's spending plans right up to the banking crash was not because he didn't see the banking crash coming, it's because of a legal loophole. So he needs a law to make him do the thing he says he's going to do, because otherwise he'd be like a man who thinks, well, I do feel the call of nature, but, I mean, there's nothing on the statute book about lavatory, so I'm just going to go in my trousers. (laughs) 
I think that what they show, uh, especially our Chancellor, is aspiration. It should be an aspirational thing living in a country. And I watched him at the Mansion House and I watched his speech and he didn't make a lot of sense to me. But I did say to my wife, next time you're in Ikea, get some of them gold plates. Because <laughs> I'm thinking that food tastes a little bit better off a gold plate. <laughs> They often say, oh, you, you don't understand, you can't compare, you know, the economy of a country with your household economy. And then they try and explain it to you by saying things like, we're going to fix the roof mm. while the sun's shining, which, of course, is an entirely comprehensible image. So assuming that is the point of this bringing in this law that the country always has to have a surplus in normal circumstances, which is the very heavily italicised proviso. Assuming that's what they're doing, I mean, I can understand that, actually, that does seem like a very good sensible bit of household economics that, you know, you're going to fix the roof while the sun's shining so that it's fixed when it rains. That seems to me eminently sensible. And if you can fix the roof while the sun's shining and still have a surplus in the bank, then you are clearly mm. doing very well and you're eminently sensible. If, however, you're spending the money to fix the roof and keeping a load of money in the bank and your children are having to eat out of food banks, that seems to me slightly less sensible, <laughs> I think. But I don't, I don't understand the numbers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but off gold plates. Yeah. <laughs> Point I'm making. That's where I got I, it wrong. I thought it was quite refreshing for a politician to say, though, that he's going to fix the roof while the sun's shining, because most would arrange to stay in their second home while it's being done. So <laughs> I, I thought it was fine. I, um, I don't understand what normal economic uh, conditions are. Because there is no normal, is there? I mean, it, the economic conditions are always decided by the market. I mean, what's a normal interest rate. All, all I can say is if this law relies on someone defining what is normal, I don't think that person should be George Osborne. <laughs> That's true. Um, no, he kept saying, um, he talked about normal times, and I kept thinking, I wonder what normal times are. It does sound like a really awful start to a novel, doesn't it? <laughs> it wasn't the best of times, it wasn't the worst of times, it was, well, it was, you know, sort of normal time. <laughs> Uh, did you see Mark Carney, the Bank of England governor? Uh, he uh, is talking about heralding a new age of uh, people in the city being responsible. Yeah. Yeah, how does that work? The bank has put the toilet seat down after they've <laughs> snorted cocaine off it. I don't know how... He, he came looks... out with my favourite expression of the week, where he said that the banks had been guilty of ethical drift. Oh. <laughs> Try that one in a courtroom. <laughs> I'm sorry, Your Honour. Yes, yes, they did catch me trying to steal all their stuff, but I was suffering from ethical drift. Uh, Chancellor George Osborne has announced that the government will sell its stake in the Royal Bank of Scotland, resulting in a £7 billion loss to the taxpayer. The bank was bailed out in 2008 for £45.2 billion in exchange for 80% of the company, making it the second most costly stake after the one Jeremy Clarkson got sacked over. <laughs> The Chancellor made the announcement after a lavish dinner at London's Mansion House where he talked about saving money before looking at the bill and saying, well, I didn't have a starter. <laughs> Osborne said the RBS sale was the right thing to do for taxpayers as opposed to the left thing to do for taxpayers, which is to spend all their money on a giant stone tablet and then lose it. <laughs> During the dinner, Osborne said, frankly, in the short term, the easiest path for the politician is to leave it to someone else at some future time to pick up the pieces in what must be the most comprehensive answer to the question, would you like red or white? <laughs> Two points to Andy. Rebecca, who said back or sack and then cracked? <laughs> oh, that's quite unpleasant, isn't it? That's... <laughs> Only apologise. <clears throat> yes, well, this would be to do with the EU 
referendum, mm. uh, in which the options are, as with the hokey-cokey, in, out, or shake it all about. And um, it was a meeting of the G7 leaders this week, and Cameron's been sort of doing the rounds and talking about the referendum and how he's trying to negotiate with European leaders. And he went on the Andrew Marr show, and he talked about this very simple issue. There's the referendum question, which, which is a simple yes-no, but there's another question which has a simple yes-no answer, which is, will ministers who want to opt out of the EU have to resign from the Cabinet? Very simple, yes or no. And he gave a crystal clear answer, absolutely very clear, couldn't be misunderstood. Unfortunately, Andrew Marr, who obviously isn't used to political interviews, talked over him. (laughs) And so he then was asked the same question again a few days later, and he gave another crystal clear answer, which bafflingly some journalists seemed to think was the direct opposite of what he had said previously. It's become more and more befuddled as the week has gone on. And other ministers have weighed in, Philip Hammond, the Foreign Secretary, and uh, Boris Johnson, the minister for just sit there where I can keep an eye on you. (laughs) (laughs) They've all all sort of, you know, stuck the two penneth in and said, well, he should definitely sack people, or no, he should definitely not sack people. And the Prime Minister has just looked increasingly cross and just said, but I've told you what I'm going to do. And so far, nobody seems to know what that is. No, he's kept saying, I've been very clear, and that's apparently code for your question is annoying me. (laughs) Why why are we bothering with the referendum, really? Because, I mean, everyone's sort of made up their minds, aren't they, it seems to me. I mean, what possible concessions could Cameron negotiate that would satisfy the Eurosceptic diehards? I mean... Well, you know. apparently one of the uh, things is that uh, migrants will have to wait four years to claim benefits. That's one of the things that he wants. And it just goes to show that David Cameron has clearly never met a migrant. In four years, our Lithuanian builder, he wouldn't be claiming benefits. He'd have rebuilt the UK. I mean, he's the most <laughs> astonishing force of, uh, of but, nature. But that would not satisfy uh, the diehards. I mean, I, I think something like... Europe to be renamed Lesser England. <laughs> that that might yeah. go somewhere. You know, Spain to be ceded to Gibraltar. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, the other thing that occurs to me now as well is for it to be plausible that he's got concessions, they have to look like hard-fought, hard-won mm. yeah, concessions. It's, it's got to be tough. So he's going to have to ask for some play-acting from Angela Merkel. You know, behind closed doors. I'll be honest, she doesn't look the playful type. Well, no. <laughs> but he'll need it. He'll need her to go, you know, behind closed doors. He'll need her to go, oh, no, no, David, please, no. No, yeah, no two tears. Sylvia tried that. And it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the people who are lining up, it's thought that Ian Duncan Smith, Philip Hammond and Michael Gove are all potential no voters. I have to say, it doesn't matter what the question is, does it really? Europe, welfare, fun, they're against it. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of the usual suspects, isn't it? But you're right, I don't know what possible concessions they might want to... They had the ex-Prime Minister of Belgium on, and he was interviewed today, and he said in some strange accent which sounded like almost perfect English... <laughs> If you leave the common market, it makes no sense because we all want you to stay in and also it would cost you £4,000 per person and there's nothing to be gained at all. If there are concessions that need making, we'll happily make them, but most of them your government could make anyway because the laws aren't that strict. And I sat there watching, oh, there's a typical foreigner sitting there talking sense. (laughs) Gets on your nerves, doesn't it? (laughs) 
David Cameron maintains that he was misinterpreted in reports that claimed he would force cabinet ministers to support him in the forthcoming EU referendum. On Sunday, it was reported that he'd make ministers resign if they wanted to campaign for Britain to leave the EU. On Monday, he said his comments had been misinterpreted, and on Tuesday, we all went back to worrying about that dog from Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> One in three Tory MPs could join the group called Conservatives for Britain, which is different from Conservatives for Britain's Got Talent, where Michael Gove climbs a ladder and then Philip Hammond runs across a wire. <laughs> Cameron was speaking at the G7 conference in Germany, which used to be the G8 until Zane left. <laughs> to be honest, I wasn't really concentrating. Two uh, points to Rebecca. Bob, who's vetoing votes for everyone? Oh, is this, this is David again, so yeah. Mr. David Cameron, the Prime Minister, uh, and the Scots. This is a strange situation that's arisen with, with Scotland, who had a referendum for independence and were, were a day away from voting for independence. And then uh, Cameron and and Clegg went up there and promised them apes, peacocks, and even unto half my kingdom, please. <laughs> Which was just an ego thing, because none of them wanted to be the people whose names appear in the history book as the party leaders at the time that you know, the union broke up. So they made these stupid concessions, which just influenced enough Scots to, to give the no campaign a majority. And we're now living through this ridiculous thing, which someone on the radio the other day called a dog's breakfast. Although my dog has rather a nice breakfast. He always has a bit of lean steak and that. But this is... <laughs> this is this ridiculous situation where you have this tranche of 50-odd SNP MPs and now we have to... Well, oh, well, we won't let them vote on things that don't affect Scotland, but everything kind of affects Scotland. They can always work that out. And it's this terrible mishmash that has come about just because we weren't brave enough to just say, well, you know, if you want to leave the union, leave the union, and, and not make concessions in advance that we couldn't possibly keep to. And what the Scottish Nationalists are doing, of course... And this is, this is a really difficult thing for me to say. Believe me, it really is, because it's something that I've laid down my life to support... But they're trying to have their cake and eat it, all right? <laughs> and on this particular occasion, it doesn't really work for them. So we're in a terrible state at the moment where Parliament doesn't know what it's doing and we're going to have the next five years of constant irritation until someone comes up with the perfect solution. Which is? Let's have a referendum to decide whether or not Scotland should be an independent nation or continue as part of the Union. Only this time, let us vote. <laughs> Bob, what kind of dog have you got? I've got a lovely little... It's a cross between a, a Chihuahua and a Maltese. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's, no, it's, it's a tiny little thing, but it thinks it's massive. This is all about the, the West Lothian question. It is. And, of course, the West Lothian question is, what is the West Lothian question? <laughs> but now we well, know. I was going to get a West Lothian, but then we looked at a border collie, but then in the end... <laughs> we went with the one we <laughs> Well, one of those um, uh, uh, people against this, they kept saying, well, surely this means the Scottish MPs are going to be forced to sit in the House of Commons and debate legislation that they have no hope of influencing. And I thought, well, if the Lib Dems could do it for five years, I can't see why... <laughs> It's difficult for you. What are English laws? I didn't understand. Well, what would be an English law? I think it's things like um, ensuring that Scottish MPs don't have a say on matters that are specific to England, such as, you know, the Archer's theme tune, <laughs> the recipe for a perfect cup of tea, 
how many times you have to say sorry to someone who's just trodden on your toe. Those are very... <laughs> I tried to vote for Nicola Sturgeon, but she wasn't on the ballot paper in Wimbledon, so... <laughs> Uh, David Cameron is to change Commons procedures to remove the right of Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish MPs to vote on legislation that only pertains to England. Under this new system, the Speaker of the House will have to determine which bills are English-only laws by waving them under the nose of a UKIP supporter to see if he drools. <laughs> Some senior Tories, such as John Redwood and David Davis, are requesting a full English Parliament, which is like a normal Parliament, only it includes sausages, beans and a grilled tomato. <laughs> Two points to Bob. Jeremy, which ex-spin doctor has a grim diagnosis for anyone going into Labour? Well, everybody has an opinion now on what Labour should be doing. Tony Blair's been, you know, going on about what Labour should do, which is odd since there's no history of his ever supporting the party, so why, <laughs> why he even cares? But, of course, uh, the spin doctor is Alistair Campbell, who just won't beg her off. You don't have a job anymore. Go away now. But he was being all alpha male, and he said, uh, if the new leader doesn't shape up within three years, he's just going to lamp them one in a bar. <laughs> I, think, I think what we should bear in mind, of course, with Alistair is that you know, he has heroically overcome. Because as a young man, he was diagnosed with acute self-importance syndrome. <laughs> uh, which he's tackling one day at a time. And Jen's right. They just won't... The three of them, the three amigos, Blair, Mandelson and Campbell, just won't leave us alone. They, <laughs> I mean, I think part of it is that denial thing. Because Blair was never defeated, was he, in his own mind. He's never really accepted that he was rejected. And I think until he has some kind of therapy whereby he's led into a room and bombarded with excrement, I don't think he will. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... Actually, that's quite a good idea. That's it's just not a... bad. Yeah. I don't bad. think he will fully appreciate that nobody wants to hear from him anymore. But it was extraordinary. I mean, everybody now seems to be offering advice to the Labour Party. Honestly, it's like someone has asked a group of 50-year-old men what mortgage to go for. It is... <laughs> it's just astonishing. And did anybody see Harriet Harman in... Harriet, well, she did a rather strange thing. She was sort of, like, complaining about... Um, David Cameron gloating, and glo she said, you're gloating. And then she said, show some class. And I think David Cameron's class seems manifestly obvious to me. I mean, <laughs> couldn't make it more plain if he was surrounded by baying hounds, which he usually is. <laughs> Liz Kendall, she's first off the mark every week to agree with everything Cameron says, before Mary Cray even has a chance to agree with everything Cameron says. Liz Kendall is in there first. You think, look, the point of opposition is to oppose. The point of being an alternative is to be different. I'm not here to advise Conservative voters, but if you want Conservatives with Conservative policies, vote Conservative. They've been doing it longer, they've got more experience, and their heart's really in it. Why would you want to vote for somebody who has either opportunistically decided to clothe themselves in Tory policies for cynical reasons, or has absent-mindedly joined a party that's supposed to be different? <laughs> We look forward to the next Labour rally. What do we want? We don't know. When do we want it? Stop asking so many questions. <laughs> uh, Ex-Labour spin doctor Alistair Campbell was among many people voicing their opinion on the future of Labour ahead of the party's leadership nominations on Monday. Campbell said he will happily lead the charge to oust the next Labour leader should they fail to make an impact. So if you're not keeping up, that's an unelected official threatening to sack a person who hasn't been chosen yet from a job they don't have. <laughs> 
democracy in action, ladies and gentlemen. Also this week, Deputy Labour leader Harriet Harman said that many Labour voters were relieved the party did not win the election. Meanwhile, the Liberal Democrats... Oh, no, my mistake. Nothing. Um... <laughs> At the end of round one, the scores are Andy and Rebecca have got four points, but so too have Bob and Jeremy. We start round two with a cutting from the BBC News website. A French horn that's the only one of its kind has been stolen from the home of its creator in Derbyshire. Tom Fisher said, I spent hundreds of hours on this horn, designing and engineering it. This is a major blow. <laughs> and our thanks to Gaynor Hughes for sending us that. Andy, why will there soon be less SIGs over the seven? Uh, well, this is a story about uh, Wales, which, to give you some idea, is a country about the size of Wales. <laughs> uh, sorry. sorry. I've waited so long to do that joke. I've never, had a, I've never had a question about Wales. Now, I'm a bit sort of conflicted by this story because there was a time in my life when I was the most militant anti-smoking vigilante you could imagine and I quite often had words with people who lit up in restaurants near me using what my wife described as my Bob Hoskins voice <laughs> uh, so I should sort of have a strong opinion but I'm confused because as far as I understand it this ban that's being proposed in Wales against e-cigarettes or vaping isn't it as far as I understand it all that's produced is vapour so in terms of risk to third parties, the worst it could be is sort of passive dampness. <laughs> um, but there is some dispute about whether they're harmful or not. The tobacco industry says that the product is totally harmless, which means that the opposite is almost certainly the case <laughs> if you look at history. That's, I mean, right. the, the concern is that young people will be encouraged to smoke by seeing others do it. I smoke e-cigarettes and personally I don't see the harm, said Alid Smith, aged five, from Cardiff. <laughs> <laughs> there is, there is, I, I've got an argument against e-cigarettes. I mean, I'm all for people giving up smoking. My husband gave up smoking uh, a little while ago and I was absolutely thrilled and then he started vaping because... It is just vapour. He does that now in the house, whereas he always used to go outside. Now, my problem with that is not that he spends more time in the house. That would be cruel. Um, <laughs> but he sits in the front room puffing on this e-cigarette, and it is for all the world like an old boy puffing on a meerschaum pipe. I mean, it's, it's this noise, if I can sort of create this over the radio. It's a kind of... I've got to say, it drives me insane. It, and I almost have got to the point where I quite like him to take up smoking again. I went through a period of smoking 20 e-cigarettes a day before I realised they were reusable. I had no idea. I didn't realise they had so many flavours. Yes. Oh, yeah. Of course, the, the really moral thing to do would be to take out the nicotine as well, wouldn't it? And just have something you just blow that tastes of strawberries. Yeah. Or even a strawberry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think a blowing a strawberry would give you pleasure, though, if I'm honest with you. Oh, well, don't knock it till you try it. <laughs> People will be banned from using e-cigarettes in enclosed spaces such as restaurants, pubs and at work in Wales under new public health laws. Ministers have argued they did not want to take the risk of seeing smoking normalised because what could be more normal than using a lithium battery to vaporise chemicals using a heating coil through an atomizer the way God intended? <laughs> 
Welsh ban on e-cigarettes is unlikely to be repeated in Yorkshire, where e-cigarette is just how a local says they want a cigarette. <laughs> the Faculty of Public Health said the Welsh move was very welcome, saying the proliferation of e-cigarettes could encourage young people to take up actual cigarettes. Presumably in the same way the proliferation of email encouraged young people to start posting handwritten letters to each other. <laughs> which led to the great stamp shortage of 2010. <laughs> uh, two points to Andy. Rebecca, have a listen to this. Wise men say Only fools rush in But I can't help It's the trucker's hour at three o'clock in the morning on Radio 2. <laughs> Marvellous, wasn't it? Rebecca, who said XX plus XY equates to bad science? Um, Professor... Can you hear that rumble? <laughs> <laughs> Professor Tim Hunt, uh, who is a Nobel Prize-winning fellow of the Royal Society, a very eminent um, scientist, and he, he gave a talk to, I believe, a society of science journalists mm. and said some things which he later regretted saying in, and said, I just, you know, I, just, I suppose I should have thought about saying that in front of a group of scientists, and, uh, journalists, and you kind of think, it's a group of science journalists, that's what the talk is. Anyway, what he said in this speech was that he thought it wasn't great to have mixed-gender labs. Mm. I think he was trying to be light-hearted, but he said the problem with having women in labs, there were three problems. One was that they fall in love with you. <laughs> Two, you fall in love with them. And three, they cry if you criticise them. <laughs> uh, now, having made these statements, he pretty well wrote off number one as a risk, I think. <laughs> That's unlikely to happen. But, you know, and anyway, he's apologised. Um, and he's had to resign from the board of University College London. And, you know, so it, there's been a bit of a hoo-ha about this whole thing. Now, the, uh, in his defence, I mean, there are problems for women in a scientific area. You know, their lovely long tresses can get scorched by a Bunsen burner. <laughs> and, um, and their lady boobies can, you know, knock over flasks full of dangerous chemicals. <laughs> And they can suffer severe concussion by repeatedly banging their heads against a glass ceiling. <laughs> it's this last which has caused the most objection. So obviously, you know, it, it's not, we're not really at a place where making jokes about women in science is kind of comfortable, you know. I think maybe if they redress the balance slightly and there are, you know, rather more women going into science than the negligible percentage that does at the moment then maybe we can start taking the mickey but at the moment we're not quite there yet um, but what's rather marvellous about this is that Twitter has taken it on and there's a, a hashtag which I urge you to look up which is hashtag distractingly sexy <laughs> I urge you to have a look at hashtag distractingly sexy where, pe where women who work in science have taken pictures of themselves wearing the most ridiculous <laughs> sort of protective gear <laughs> you literally cannot make out if it's even a human being <laughs> And, and then just sort of said, sorry, I'm being distractingly sexy today. <laughs> and also a rather brilliant Twitter person who goes under the name at Steve Diggle 
um, very sweetly drew up a sign that reads, Caution, Mixed Gender Lab, No Falling in Love or Crying. <laughs> and, and allowed this to be sort of printed off and stuck on. And there were lots of pictures of people who'd actually printed this off and stuck it on the outside of their labs. So Twitter, yet again, triumphs in this situation. Well, um, and Sir Hunt said, uh, Single-sex workplaces worked better as they reduced sexual tension. Can I just say, not always, Sir Hunt. Just... <laughs> This is, this is terrible, I'm sure, what he said in this modern society we live in. But if you look back in history, if you've ever studied the biographies of the great scientists, when her husband suggested that in the radium mass equation she should perhaps uh, extract to the power of six, Marie Curie uh, broke a petri dish and slammed out the room and said, you never love me, talk to the slut from the post office. <laughs> Tim Hunt is a Nobel Prize winner, but can I just remind everybody in the audience that Marie Curie won two Nobel Prizes in two different scientific disciplines, uh, while Tim Hunt only won one, and I may need one of the men to help me, but two is greater than one, isn't it? I... <laughs> the Nobel Prize-winning scientist Sir Tim Hunt has resigned from his post at UCL after he told a delegation of female scientists that their peers distract male colleagues by falling in love with them and cry when they're criticised. Hunt made his comments at the World Conference of Science Journalists in Seoul, South Korea, just before the cancellation of Prince Philip's talk on eye size. <laughs> Sir Hunt won a Nobel Prize in 2001 for his pioneering work in persuading a woman to marry him. If Tim Hunt is any good at tractor drag racing, he's thought to be a shoe-in as the next host of Top Gear. Two points to Rebecca. Jeremy, why do loose lips save lives? Is this the story about gossip? Just say yes or no, and I promise it won't go any further. <laughs> it is, my darling. Right. Well, far be it from me, but a little bird... To, well, a newspaper who shall remain main, nameless, but it begins with the and ends in telegraph... <laughs> told me this in the strictest confidence, so none of it leaves this room. Uh, a professor from one of the Oxbridge universities, beginning with O, <laughs> reckons that gossip is what makes us human. Well, far be it from me to tittle-tattle, but Darwinians, Darwinians say it's evolution what makes us human, but they're no better than they ought to be. <laughs> No knickers if I'm not very much mistaken. Far be it from me to cast aspersions, but there's no smoke without fire, that's what I say. Uh, apparently they say um, gossip is what sets us apart from the animals, and I thought, well, they've clearly never seen that bit with all the mean female elephants at the start of Dumbo. That's very... <laughs> But how do we know? So basically the supposition here is that we are human because, we, you know, we gossip and this, this is something that we do that brings us together. And it's what differentiates us from the animals. How do they know that animals don't gossip? When we hear these wonderful whale songs that they all moan on about, oh, the whale song is beautiful, what are they saying? Maybe they're saying, guess who I saw in the Bering Strait? <laughs> <laughs> With a bloke, not our husband. <laughs> Maybe that's what they're I doing. heard she was seeing a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> there was a psychology professor, Dr Jennifer Cole. Oh, my God, a girl doing science. I expect she got a touch of the vapours. I expect she hardly finished her experiment. Um, it showed that uh, people are wary of those who don't gossip uh, as much as they're wary of those people who gossip a lot. Why are you looking at me? I don't know. <laughs> 
evolutionary psychologist Professor Robin Dunbar has suggested that increasing the size of someone's social network will have more of a positive effect on their health than any other factor, including diet. Human societies are apparently built on gossiping, although, ironically, nobody told me. <laughs> Professor Dunbar said, the size of your social network will have a bigger impact on your survival than anything the doctors can throw at you. Although, if your doctors are throwing stuff at you, it's probably time to change doctors. <laughs> At the end of round two, the scores are Andy and Rebecca have got eight points, but so too have Bob and Jeremy. <laughs> we start round three with a cutting from a Cumbrian parish magazine. Weight Watchers meeting, Thursday, 7pm in the parish church. Please enter via the large double doors at the side of the building. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Sarah Armstead for sending us that. Andy, where are the young volunteering to be silver sofa surfers? This is a story from France where a charity, I think it is, has got this rather good scheme where um, students who might be lonely or looking for digs can be housed with OAPs, hmm? often very elderly OAPs, you know, and if they don't mind the sort of disconcerting memory lapses and the fact that their clothes smell of urine, you know, why not house a student? <laughs> um, so uh, apparently it's quite a successful scheme because it, there's a lot of loneliness in big cities and uh, it seems like a very good idea well, I would have loved this when I was a student I what? get back home after a few drinks take the stair lift to bed <laughs> It's a brilliant idea by the French. It's been going on in this country, certainly where I live, for, for some time, only slightly differently, in that the students go away and have a fantastic three years living with their friends and then come back and live with old people for free. <laughs> Increasing numbers of university students in France are shunning halls and opting to live with pensioners, providing their elderly housemates with company in exchange for cheap rent and all the Werther's originals they can eat. <laughs> it's in France, that should be originaux de Werther. Uh, the scheme has been launched by charities promoted by the French government and carefully monitored by sitcom writers everywhere. <laughs> this successful pairing of older men and younger women was inspired by almost all television-presenting teams ever. <laughs> Two points to Andy. Bob, have a listen to this. Bob, why do scientists suggest Aorta listen to more classical music? That's very good. That's very good. Because it, it reduces blood pressure. If you've got high blood pressure, it can reduce... Some of it can. It needs to be the classic rhythm of 10-second rhythm. Uh, Beethoven's Ninth is perfect. If you've got high blood pressure, don't listen to Vivaldi's Four Seasons because it's too quick and it speeds you up. So what they're saying is that listening to classical music... Well, it's not just a question of relaxing you, it's a question of it's actually having an effect on your blood pressure. So if you've got high blood pressure, that is one way of dealing with it. So it's a good thing, although the great thing is, of course, it, sometimes it works without you knowing it, because sometimes if you phone your local surgery, you're holding on for so long. <laughs> that by the time the receptionist picks up the phone, you're feeling a little bit better anyway. 
it's not much of a research thing. It said calming music was more likely to calm listeners. Now, I may be going out on a limb, but I don't really need a scientist at Oxford University <laughs> to tell me that. But it makes you wonder what other subconscious effects classical music can have, because, do you know, Radio 3 is so whispery. I'm convinced it's an ongoing experiment in, in mass hypnosis. If you, seriously, if you drink four coffees and you listen really hard, you can hear them going, that was Palestrina's Mrs. Anomine. Rise up, my drone army. Crush, kill. Radio, Radio 2 deliberately play the most soporific music in the middle of the night. It's like, this is Radio 2 through the night. Sleepy sounds for people trying to make it home on motorways. <laughs> Yes, Celine Dion. Look out for that lorry! <laughs> Cardiologists at Oxford University have found that certain operas and classical orchestral pieces are perfectly in sync with the body's natural rhythm, so significantly lower the listener's blood pressure. Researchers played participants different music styles and analysed each person's cardiovascular response. The results showed that blood pressure was lowered when listening to slower pieces by Verdi or Beethoven, while blood pressure was increased substantially when the researcher couldn't get the bloody iPod to come off shuffle. <laughs> Now, the results also showed that listening to rap music can heighten blood pressure, while listening to bagpipes can make you question whether you actually want to stay alive at all. <laughs> the music, which caused a fall in blood pressure, tended to have a repeated 10-second rhythm. Pieces that repeat every 10 seconds include Verdi, Beethoven, and episodes of QI on Dave. <laughs> the research will be published next year in Now That's What I Call Cardiology, Volume 3. <laughs> I have no idea where they're going to publish it. Two points to Bob. Jeremy, who's going ape over alcohol? Chimps. Somewhere in Guinea. Bossu in Guinea. Bossu in Guinea. Uh, they make a drink by tapping little wedges into these trees that have a very sugary sap, and it leaks out, in, it ferments very, very quickly to make a very delicious drink, and they leak it out into a pot and put a leaf over it, uh, it stops trains from running it over. But they, uh, what happens is that... Um, <laughs> What happens is that the chimps have been taking off the leaf and then they've been scooping it out and getting slaughtered. But apparently they stop at a certain point. But they think this is an important part of our evolution hmm. because our ancestors, I mean the ones who are dead, not the ones who are, you know, in care homes, but our ancestors <laughs> um, discovered alcohol and this meant that they started getting a bit leery. And because once you've had alcohol, you, you get the munchies, you want to eat something, and so you're getting more calories. Alcohol's got a lot of calories, and you're making sandwiches late at night. And so we suddenly had this massive... We put on loads of weight and evolved in some way. We, was, we were drunk, and that's when we started to make really sensible decisions about our future, and that's how we evolved. I remember being in um, the remote part of Zimbabwe, beautiful sort of tented hotel, and uh, there was a fantastic swimming pool with chairs all around, and there was nobody out at the pool. A lovely waiter said to me, would you, would you like to care for a drink? I said, oh, that'd be, that'd be lovely. I'll have a fruit punch, please. And I'm going to sit out by the pool. And he went, OK. So I went out by the pool, and he came out with this fantastic rum punch and a three-foot thick stick. And I said, oh, what's the stick for? He said, the drink is for you, madam, the stick is for the monkeys. And they love the rum punch so much they fought me for it. Um, <laughs> There is an absolutely wonderful sort of 1960s Disney nature film. You know those ones they used to make with a commentary which went, uh-oh, here come the little guys. <laughs> and I think it's called Beautiful People. But it includes a sequence in the Okavango Delta or something where an oasis sort of flowers and all this fruit 
ripens and drops to the ground and ferments, and all the animals get absolutely smashed. And if you've never seen a pissed giraffe, <laughs> you know, trying desperately to untangle its legs, and, and there's a fantastic sequence where this very leery drunk baboon, he's going mad, and then he starts running full pelt down this hill and just goes straight into a tree. <laughs> And then uh, the, the next scene is the morning after, which is all the animals with hangovers, all the baboons sitting there with their head in their hands, this giraffe with its legs in a reef knot. It's just... <laughs> Scientists from Oxford Brookes University have confirmed the drunken monkey hypothesis, which is the hypothesis that, given half a chance, all apes will get absolutely trashed. Most of the chimps would start boozing at 7am, arguing that in Singapore the sun was already over the yard. <laughs> I knew they weren't drinking teas. No wonder they never shifted that piano. Um, <laughs> uh, two points to Jeremy. Before we reveal the final scores, has anybody got a cutting that they would like to share? I've got one here from Marie Brown, and it's from the local police on Twitter. And it's got a photo of three rather unprepossessing-looking individuals. And it says, Group given 14 years for conspiracy to bugle. <laughs> This one was sent in by James Smith and he got it from the BBC London TV News. An exhibition exploring the story of spray painting opens in London this week. It's a style of painting that was made easier with the invention of the spray can. In <laughs> Sandy, this was sent in by David Dutton of Haddington and it's on the Church of Scotland website. Church speaks out against organ trafficking. Take a look at the final score. Andy and Rebecca have got 12 points, but this week's winners are Bob and Jeremy with 13. Before we leave you, here is an advertisement from the Banbury Cake sent in by Nick Dunn. Banbury Pest Control. Wasps, ants, fleas, flies, rats, mice, cockroaches, bedbugs. Discount for OAPs. Goodbye. Taking part in the news quiz were Andy Hamilton, Rebecca Front, Bob Mills and Jeremy Hardy. In the chair was Sandy Toxvik and the news was read by me, Zeb Soames. The chair script was written by Gareth Gwynne, Lucy Clark and Tom Neenan. With additional material by Gilead Ahmed, Gabby Hutchinson-Cratch and Max Davis. The producer was Lindsay Fenner and it was a BBC Radio comedy production. 